Okay, now in your text, we're looking, um, we're doing the paragraph. So I'm actually going to be preaching on 25 to 29, but the last time I was here, we got down to 24, and all of you remember that sermon, of course, so you're all kept up with those verses. So I'm just putting that in so you know the context. Are you ready? Now, before faith came, now you need to think this way. We've got to do this, and you know I'm back. I'm like the consummate, continuing higher education and theology person. I want you to remember that when you come to the scriptures, there are two lenses you have to always keep looking through. And usually what happens is we only look through one of those lenses, and so we get all messed up when we get to passages like this. Two lenses are this. You have to look through the lens in the scripture of the storyline of the Bible. Also, you have to look through the experiential line of the Bible, how you stand before God. How do the participants in the text, the original hearers and now us listening now, how do we relate in our relationship to God? What's happening here when it says, now before faith came, it's not talking about your personal faith. It's talking about a major epic transition in the story of salvation. It's that other lens. It's the cosmic chapters of redemption lens, not you as an individual relating to God lens. Okay? You with me? And that happens throughout here all the time. See if you can tell the difference of which is which. Here we go. Now faith, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit. And we're asking that your word would run in triumph by the power of your spirit. So, oh, Lord, would you give that? Would you grant that? And would each person here hear from you what they need to hear. May they know that they they belong in Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, here's the preaching plan for the fall. Got to get a little orientation here. We're going to finish Galatians 4 by the end of September, okay? When we finish Galatians 4 by the end of September, I want you to look a little bit. If you go to 4, look at chapter 21. Those of you who have your Bibles open, look at 21 down to the end of 31. There's 10 verses there. Uh, This is a little sneak preview. We're launching into this territory very, very quickly, and we're going to try to finish it by the end of September, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do after that. But this passage, 21 through 31, is a mountain of a passage. I mean, it is, it's huge. 
It contrasts two sons, two mothers, two mountains, two covenants. And the whole point of these contrasts of two is that Paul's trying to argue, as he's been arguing throughout this whole book, that there are only two ways to live. Every single human being lives in one of these two ways. Now that makes it real simple for us. That means that there's two ways to live. We can kind of figure things out a little bit better. I mean, if there's millions and millions of ways to live, as long as there are millions and billions of people, good night. Spend the rest of your life saying, oh, what's your way to live? Okay, great. Go over here. You know, you're Forrest Gump. You're going everywhere trying to find the way to live. According to Paul, the person who sleeps around, who cheats on their taxes, who walks out on their family, who is material, materially and relationally successful, who's a nice, moral, Bible-believing, go-to-church-on-Sundays person, someone who's an atheist and doesn't believe in the Bible, someone who's religiously persnickety about the specific details of their world religion, according to Paul, all these people could be living the same way. According to Paul, all of these people could be building their life around the same thing. After Galatians 4, and we really get down these two ways to live, because as you can see, these two ways to live are very significant. They're right in the middle of the book. The whole book is driving towards these two ways. And the whole book is, he's trying to recover the, the one particular way that we, we live. And he's calling us to live. Once we get that down, I think we're going to be ready. I think we'll be ready to climb Another rugged mountain called Mount Sinai. I think we'll be ready to go on a mountain that's moving with dark clouds, hazy smoke, booming with thunder and lightning, and shaking with violent tremors. I think we'll be ready to tackle the most well-known moral system in the world, the Ten Commandments. So when we get done with chapter 4, we're going to go on an adventure up Mount Sinai. And I have us getting done with that adventure around Christmas, covering all the Ten Commandments. Yeah. You impressed? Thank you. Uh, When we're done with the Ten Commandments, we're going to come back to Galatians and hit chapters 5 and 6. I think that's going to put us somewhere in the early to late spring, middle spring. Now, as you know, God has a way of pushing other passages into the preaching calendar. And so I expect things to be happening along the way as well. Now, after that, middle of spring, late spring, summer, back into the fall, no idea. What we'll do. Isn't that fun? I love it. All right, now, some of you are joining us for the first time in Galatians. And you're either a visitor to Redeemer, but not a visitor to the Bible, or this is your first official visit to the Bible. Your first official visit to church. 
Your first official visit to hearing the strange thing that people do on Sundays is hear a sermon. Okay? What I would like to say to, to both of those folks. Welcome. I want to give you a a cosmic Galatians welcome. And I want to help us a little bit to get oriented to what we've been doing here. Galatians is a pretty straightforward book or letter, okay? It centers around high drama. It centers around this straightforward plot line. And here's the high line drama. Will the church going Galatians try to be their own savior in life or will they trust the real one. That's the drama of Galatians. Will the church-going Galatians try to be their own savior, or will they, in an ongoing, present, deeply personal way, trust in the real one? That's the plot line. Now, for Paul, what's happening in this book is that real Christianity is at stake in the church. And I know that sounds really weird. How can real Christianity be at stake in the church? Isn't, isn't the home of Christianity the church? I mean, it sounds much more reasonable, and it makes much more sense if we were to say real Christianity is at stake at Daytona Beach at spring break. Real Christianity is at stake in some Baylor campuses under some Baylor professors. Real Christianity is at stake in certain movie, media, political circles. But to say that real Christianity is at stake in the church, that is stunning. So I want you to to hold on to your flowery Bible covers for a second. Because what I'm about to say is going to seem upside down and counterintuitive. Both Jesus and Paul told the church-going people in their day that the greatest threat to real Christianity was not bad people but good people. At this wedding reception, we were going back to our hotel after eating all that food. Uh, It's late. We're all packed in an elevator. Now when my family gets in an elevator, we pack it. So I really felt sorry for the poor 30-something-year-old dude that's standing in there with us. And we're pretty loud. We're loud. We're laughing. I don't know what it is, but I think there's a hat and jean that, that has loudness in it. So our kids are loud. Everybody's loud. We're loud. We're in this deal. We're having a wonderful time. There's this 30-something-year-old who's also coming back from a good time. But I think his kind of good time and our kind of good time, by the looks of it, look like they were worlds apart. And as we're in there, out of the blue, the, the, guy, the guy just looks at me and he says, Hey man, what's your profession? And this smile creeps across my face because I know exactly where this conversation is going. I mean, what do you do? Everywhere I go, what do you do, sir? I'm a pastor. What do you do, sir? I preach scriptures. And so I looked at him with a smile on my face and I said, I'm a pastor. And I'm not kidding, his face immediately dropped. I'm still smiling away. (laughs) Hey kids, look at this. And this is what he said with a deadly seriousness all over him. Well, dude, I'm going down in flames. 
according to Jesus and Paul, there are two ways you can try to be your own savior. One way is by being bad. One way is by being good. The problem is, the bad way usually realizes that way doesn't work. The good way tends to think it's working. And then they take their strategy of self-salvation and they poison the church with it. That's why Christianity is at stake in the church, according to Paul. All right. Not only is the drama of Galatians easy to follow, the layout's very easy. I mean, you've got six chapters total here. Six chapters giving you a different angle of this drama of, will the church-going Galatians trust in themselves to be their own savior, or will they trust in the real one, right? That drama. Two chapters each take a different angle of that drama. The first two chapters, chapters one and two, are autobiographical. Paul talks a lot about himself. In fact, he talks about 30 long verses about himself. And if you know anything about Paul, as you continue to read about him, which I hope you do, you know that that's the most uncomfortable thing for him to do. He does not like to be in the spotlight. So what would take a man that doesn't want to be in the spotlight to talk about himself for 30 long verses? Chapters 1 and 2 tell you. What's happened is these church-going, nice, Bible-believing Christians have come through the churches in Galatia and they brought this notion of their moral, spiritual performance as being a means by which you are a true Christian. And they start talking about it and they just don't get what Paul's grace salvation message is all about. And because they don't get it, they try to take it down. And so in order to attack his message, they've got to attack the messenger. So they go in and they say something like this. Look, Paul is just a second-rate apostle giving out a second-hand gospel. And so Paul has got to talk about his apostleship because the original divine messengers got married to the original divine message, which we got in the Scriptures. They're married. So if you mess with one, you mess with the other. So he spends 30 chapters dealing with his apostleship. So you've got that. Look at the next two chapters, 3 and 4. What he does here in three, two chapters here is that Paul wades into the wonders of real Christianity. He wades into the wonders of the gospel. He unpacks the beauty and the astounding mystery and massive mercy of the gospel. And he loves to camp out here, and that's where we are right now. So those of you that are wondering where we're at, we're there. The next two chapters, he ends the book by Paul connecting the gospel to everyday life. Gospel in life, as one author says. In other words, what does building your life around the gospel really look like? Paul gets pretty specific in 5 through 6. He gets everything down to relational conflict. Everything down to the way people relate to each other in your relationships. Everything down to the words you speak. All of that, connecting the gospel to that. He does stuff like, how does the gospel change you? How does real Christianity reach you and then produce personal change and relational change on the spot. That's what he tackles in 5 through 6. So here you go. Those of you that haven't been in Galatians, you got it. Defending real Christianity, chapters 1 and 2. 
discovering real Christianity, chapters 3 and 4. Personally connecting with real Christianity, 5 and 6. Okay? All right. What are we doing this morning? Look at verse 28. Here we are. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The life situation that caused Paul to defend the gospel in the churches in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey today, the life situation, a life situation happens in the churches. Paul's antenna goes up. This life situation is the stimulus for him grabbing his pen, getting a piece of paper, and writing to these churches. What's the life situation? What led Paul to write this letter? It's right there in that verse. And it's also, if you want to see, go over to chapter 2 and you could look at 11, verses 11 down to 14. Here's the life situations. Christians were mistreating Christians. That led him on one of the greatest defenses of the gospel It's been one of the most powerful books in shaping the world today. In other words, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, was not being practiced. There was racism in the church. Jewish Christians were feeling superior over the Greek Christians because of their race. There was religious bigotry. Jewish Christians were feeling superior over Greek Christians because of their law-keeping or their moral performance. This verse also touches a nerve with personal status and class. In other words, your reputation and your projected image to the world and your standing and the way you see yourself and the way you want other people to see you. It touches upon issues of money. It touches upon issues of material possessions. It touches upon issues of your success and your achievement. Slave or free. The other nerve that's touched in this passage is the battle of the sexes. Gender. Gender differences, gender roles. Male and female issues. My pastoral mentor, Paul Settle, sent me this article so you can blame him, not me, on the battle of the sexes. You ready? In it, it said, men are like fine wine. They all start out like grapes, and it's our job, the women, it's our job to stomp on them and keep them in the dark until they mature into something you'd have dinner with. (laughs) Women are like fine wine. They all start out fresh, fruity, and intoxicating to the mind. And then they turn full-bodied with age until they go all sour and vinegary and give you a headache. (laughs) Yeah. Mutual... Mutual pain on both sides, yes. All right, now let's get back to the text. In one verse, what's happening here? In one verse, Paul goes after four major areas in life where we are unwelcoming people. In one verse, he reveals where you and I are unwelcoming 
people. Race. Religion. Or moral performance, personal preferences and standards. On what? It doesn't matter. Education, um, music, um, husband and wife roles in the home to some degree. I mean, you can go on and on. How you raise your children, parenting, what movies you go to. Status, position in class, social standing, your possessions, your projected image, so on and so forth. People you hang out with, people you don't hang out with. Why? Sex, gender issues is what I mean there. Differences, roles, status, opportunities, abilities. Now here's what's happening here. When you are unwelcoming in these areas, when you and I are unwelcoming in these areas, in this passage, families fall. Relationships ruin. Communities crash. Cultures clash. Churches get trashed. So what makes, what makes us unwelcoming people? Why do these four areas reveal, become the occasion for us seeing we're unwelcoming people? Why? Why? Why did the Jewish Christians in Galatia act superior to, look down their noses at, force their views and their standards and their performance upon others? And why did they separate themselves from those Greek Christians? Why did that happen? Cheryl Crow did an interview in Reader's Digest. That's how I get a lot of reading and a broad range of areas done really fast. You wonder why I get a lot of stuff? Reader's Digest is a good place. Reader's Digest. She's doing this interview after her bout with cancer. Okay? She was asked about her painful breakup with Lance Armstrong. You know who he is? Okay. He's actually from Central Texas. I mean, he's arguably he could be one of the greatest athletes in the world. Or was. Uh, This is what she said. It was extremely painful. And what forced me to let go was my diagnosis. Because she got breast cancer. And what that dictated. This is what it dictated. Which was showing up for myself. Handling it on my own. Not flying back into that relationship. This is what got my attention. The only person who can save you is you. That was going to be the thing that informed the rest of my life. When you look to your race to save you, to give you an identity, to give you a sense of belonging, to make you somebody, other races are inferior to you. So you mistreat them. You look down your noses at them. We abuse them. We separate ourselves from them. 
when you look to your moral performance, your standards, your preferences, your, your achievement and your abilities, when you look to those things to be your righteousness, to be what makes you right, to be what makes you okay, to be what justifies you, to be what saves you, you feel superior to those who don't live up to your level of standards. You feel superior to those that don't share your same preferences. And so when we do this, we impose our standards on people. We impose our preferences on people. When we do this, we get really angry with people who blow it in our area of expertise, in our standards. When you look to your status, to your class, to your image, to your reputation, to your achievement, to your success, when you look to that to be what approves you, to be what affirms you, to be what cosmically accepts you, save you. When you do that, your image controls you. People control you. And so you run scared the rest of your life. And when your status and your class changes, it devastates you. One more. I know it's painful. It's painful for me. When you look to your gender to save you, when you look to your gender to give you worth, to give you meaning, to give you value, you look down your nose at the opposite sex. Do you want me to answer that? <laughs> Honey, was that your phone? Good night. All right. If you look to your gender to save you, you look down your nose at the opposite sex. And how do you know you're looking down your nose at your wife or your husband? How do you know you're looking down your nose at the opposite sex? Because they're there for you. They're there to serve you. They're beneath you. If they don't meet your needs, bam! How many marriages, how much marital conflict is seen at that level? And then you always fight to be on top. Got to win the argument. Got to make sure they understand why you're right. Got to make sure they understand why they're wrong. When you try to be your own savior, you treat others as if there is Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. When the text says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. So how do you become a welcoming person? We get how we become an unwelcoming person. You try to be your own savior. You want to be an unwelcoming person? Try to be your own savior. You want to know when you're unwelcoming? It's because you're trying to be your own savior. So how do you become a welcoming person? You become a welcoming person is found in verse 26. And the answer is the point, and that's how we're going to end. Look at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Okay, here's how you become a welcoming person. This is the point of the passage. 
Now, why does Paul say sons of God? For in Christ Jesus, you are sons of God through faith. Are we back to the battle of the sexes? Are we back to gender superiority? Why didn't he say, for in Christ Jesus, you are daughters of God? Why didn't he say children of God? He does so in other places in the Bible. Why does he say sons of God? Why does he do that? In the ancient Near East, the son and only the son received the father's inheritance. The father's inheritance or his wealth was usually in real estate or land. Land in the ancient Near East was life. Your identity, your status, your class, your image, your reputation, your being somebody was in the land. Your standing in the community was in the land. The land didn't belong to you. You belong to the land. It's no accident that God's greatest earthly gift to the Israelites was promised land. A land of life. Picturing cosmic salvation. Picturing a cosmic wealth and kingdom. Christians are called sons of God because they possess God the Father's cosmic inheritance. Cosmic wealth. Cosmic riches. The doors bust open and transcendent warmth and welcome rushes out to meet you. And table upon table is loaded with the richest, finest, most satisfying spiritual delicacies ever made. Forgiveness of sins. A new life. A deep sense of really belonging And God's love is like the finest wine making your heart very, very glad. You become a welcoming person when you see that God welcomes you. You become a welcoming person when you really get that He welcomes you. If you look at verses 27 and 29, it talks about union with Christ and it talks about offspring of Abraham. What that's telling you is this. You become a welcoming person when you see what it took for God to welcome you. Because of our sin and because of our corrupt Ways of trying to be our own Lord and Savior. That's what sin is. Trying to be your own Lord and Savior. Substituting the real one for your self-salvation ones. 
to make you spiritually wealthy and rich? This is what it took. Jesus had to become spiritually poor. To take you in, Jesus had to be cast out. To make you a son of God, instead of God staying Abraham's hand from taking out his own son for the sin debt of Abraham and his family's sin, God doesn't stay his own hand against his own son. He crushes him to make you a son. For you to belong, Jesus had to be broken. So brothers and sisters, you become a welcoming person when you become a gospel person. You become a welcoming person when you get that God welcomed you in Christ. Amen.